So tonight I want to talk about uh, a series. I've been doing a series on Daniel starting in 2017. I did this lecture actually in 2017, but it didn't record or I deleted it on purpose. <laughs> After uh, trying to, and since then our, our computer broke. Uh, and so I didn't have notes or a PowerPoint. So this isn't a redo. This is just a new <laughs> talk, but I wanted to finish it because I've done Daniel one through six, all lectures on each one. So you're saying it's Daniel 2.0. This is Daniel 2.0. Nice. <laughs> nice. Uh, my subtext is fake news, political anxiety, and the kingdom of God. So let me explain a little bit of what I'm trying to do first. Let's see if I can. Okay, so Karl Barth said, take your Bible in one hand, take your newspaper in the other and read both, but interpret newspapers from your Bible. That's interesting. Now, if we had a discussion about that right now, we might differ on how we are to do that. But that is my primary motivation is trying to read the Bible and read the newspaper at the same time and try to understand what the text is telling us and how might we understand um, current events. But I need to give some caveats. Hey, good to see you guys. There's some seats over here, but don't forget to grab some cookies and tea. Okay. I won't say anything important until you get here. But I need to make some caveats, okay? Some kind of uh, uh, some exceptions, okay? So when you read the Bible to understand current events, it doesn't mean it should be a straight correspondence. Uh, let's see. Where am I going? Okay. So some would say <laughs> Obama equals Antichrist when they have certain readings. In fact, there was one student that came up to me and said, um, you know, the Antichrist is Obama. And I was like, well, we can have the discussion, but she wouldn't let it go. And uh, she, once she cornered a child and was explaining this, I had to intervene. <laughs> so sometimes we can have straight readings that can make you kind of crazy, in my opinion. <clears throat> that means we can't say Trump equals Cyrus. And in this case, in Daniel 2, please don't make this mistake. <laughs> Trudeau equals Nebuchadnezzar, advisors, liberal party, Arioch, police, and Daniel and friends as Christians or freedom convoy. <laughs> you may not think that there's a difference, but there is. Um, so that's one way of not reading the Bible. Uh, so a straight correspondence. The other one is, uh, I'll go back. Oh no, it's in there. You see the little Daniel felt pads, sticker things. The other way of not reading the Bible as simply moral or a moral lesson. Um, the cross helps us understand the power of sacrificial love, um, but says nothing of real history, for instance. So the Bible is speaking of real history, but in a representative way. Uh, it's like a painting of a historical figure. Uh, there might be some dark foreboding themes because it's trying to 
uh, evoke a sense that this person was not as innocent as they looked. Um, and so the Bible really represents historical events in a representative way of trying to help us understand something about that historical event, but also to help us understand how to think of that historical event in light of our current events. That's why it can't be a straight correspondence. And so Daniel is a way of trying to help us understand eternal truths, the nature of God, the nature of earthly kingdoms, the nature of humanity, the nature of God's kingdom. And so how we read these should shape how we view the world. And based on those principles, then try to do the heavy work of applying it to current events. I'm not going to do the heavy lifting of translating current events, but we can have a discussion if you like. <clears throat> okay, so here's the plan for my talk. Not that one. Yeah, the plan of my talk is talking about these. No, <laughs> not at all. Okay, so I'm going to read Daniel 2. It's a long passage. Please bear with me. Then I'm going to reflect on the passage. And the passage is really broken up into easy, two easy categories, state and church. What's the relationship between state and church? That's a classic conversation. Um, how does Christians relate to the government? How are the government to give freedoms to religious people? And so on. Uh, and then, and so I'm going to give some reflections on that. I'm going to be kind of reflecting on Daniel 2. And then conclude with some reflections. And then we'll have an open discussion. Okay, so let me read. That's small, but hope you can see it because I need to read it as well. One night, so let me pause here uh, just to give you a little background to the book of Daniel very quickly. Daniel was written during the time of exile, maybe the intertestamental period, unless Daniel himself penned it. Uh, but it is about Israelites, particularly Judeans, who were evicted from their land by God, and God gave them over to the Babylonians. And the Babylonians are a pagan nation who have no regard for the Israel God. And, um, and these are the stories about their experience of exile, the Judean exiles. And so it has to do with Babylon, and then it has to do with Persia, and so on. And then the first half of the book are six stories and the rest are visions. And I don't have time to go into it, but the visions and the stories actually interrelate. They interpret each other. <laughs> uh, and you'll actually see repetitions. Daniel 2 looks a lot like Daniel 4. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Daniel interprets it. But there are differences. And so each story really reflects on what does it mean to be God's people under an oppressive regime? under a government that has no regard for God's moral law. Okay, so now let me read. One night during the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had such disturbing dreams that he couldn't sleep. He called in his musicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers, and he demanded that they tell him what he had dreamed. As they stood before the king, he said, I've had a dream that double, deeply troubles me, and I must know what it means. 
Then the astrologers answer the king in Aramaic, long live the king. Tell us the dream and we will tell you what it means. But the king said to the astrologers, I'm serious about this. If you don't tell me what my dream was and what it means, you'll be torn from limb to limb and your houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. But if you tell me what I dreamed and what the dream means, I will give you many wonderful gifts and honors. Just tell me the dream and what it means. They said again, please, your majesty, tell us the dream and we will tell you what it means. The king replied, I know what you're doing. You're stalling for time because you know I am serious when I say, if you don't tell me the dream, you're doomed. So you have conspired to tell me lies, hoping I will change my mind, but tell me the dream and then I'll know that you can tell me what it means. The astrologers replied to the king, no one on earth can tell the king his dream and no king, however great and powerful, has ever asked such a thing of any magician, enchanter or astrologer. The king's demand is impossible. No one except the gods can tell you your dream, and they do not live here among people. The king was furious when he heard this, and he ordered that all the wise men of Babylon be executed. And because of the king's decree, men were sent to find and kill Daniel and his friends. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, came to kill them, Daniel handled the situation with wisdom and discretion. He asked Arioch, why has the king issued such a harsh decree? So Arioch told him all that had happened. Daniel went at once to see the king and requested more time to tell the king what the dream meant. Then Daniel went home and told his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, what had happened. He urged them to ask the God of heaven to show them his mercy by telling them the secret so they would not be executed along with the other wise men of Babylon. That night, the secret was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven. He said, praise the name of God forever and ever, for he has all wisdom and power. He controls the course of world events. He removes kings and sets up other kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the scholars. He reveals deep and mysterious things and knows what lies hidden in darkness, though he is surrounded by light. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors, for you have given me wisdom and strength. You have told me what we have asked of you and revealed to us what the king demanded. Then Daniel went in to see Arioch, whom the king had ordered to execute the wise men of Babylon. Daniel said to him, don't kill the wise men. Take me to the king and I will tell him the meaning of his dream. Arioch quickly took Daniel to the king and said, I have found one of the captives from Judah who will tell the king the meaning of his dream. Then king said to Daniel, also known as Belteshazzar, is this true? Can you tell me what my dream was and what it means? Daniel replied, there are no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or fortune tellers who can reveal the king's secret. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the future. Now I will tell you your dream and the visions you saw as you lay on your bed. While your majesty was sleeping, you dreamed about coming events. He who reveals secrets has shown you what is going to happen. And it is not because I'm wiser than anyone else that I know the secret of your dream, but because God wants you to understand what was in your heart. In your vision, your majesty, you saw standing before you a huge shining statue of a man. 
It was a frightening sight. The head of the statue was made of fine gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its belly and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron. And its feet were a combination of iron and baked clay. As you watched, a rock was cut from a mountain, but not by human hands. It struck the feet of iron and clay, smashing them to bits. The whole statue was crushed into small pieces of iron, clay, bronze, silver, and gold. Then the window blew them away without a trace, like chaff on a threshing floor. But the rock that knocked the statue down became a great mountain that covered the whole earth. That was the dream. Now we will tell the king what it means. Your majesty, you are the greatest of kings. The God of heaven has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and honor. He has made you the ruler over all the inhabited world and has put even the wild animals and birds under your control. You are the head of gold. But after your kingdom comes to an end, another kingdom inferior to yours will rise to take your place. After that kingdom has fallen, yet a third kingdom represented by bronze will rise to rule the world. Following that kingdom, there will be a fourth one as strong as iron. That kingdom will smash and crush all previous empires just as iron smashes and crushes everything it strikes. The feet and the toes you saw were a combination of iron and baked clay, showing that this kingdom will be divided. Like iron mixed with clay, it will have some of the strength of iron. But while some parts of it will be as strong as iron, other parts will be as weak as clay. This mixture of iron and clay also shows that these kingdoms will try to strengthen themselves by forming alliances with each other through intermarriage, but they will not hold together just as iron and clay do not mix. During the reigns of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. It will crush all these kingdoms into nothingness, and it will stand forever. That is the meaning of the rock cut from the mountain, though not by human hands, that crushed to pieces the statue of iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold. The great God has, was showing the king what will happen in the future. The dream is true, and its meaning is certain. Then King Nebuchadnezzar threw himself down before Daniel and worshipped him, and he commanded his people to offer sacrifices and burn sweet incense before him. The king said to Daniel, truly, your God is the greatest of gods, the Lord over kings, a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this secret. Then the king appointed Daniel to a high position and gave him many valuable gifts. He made Daniel ruler of the whole province of Babylon, as well as chief over all his wise men. At Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be in charge of all the affairs of the province of Babylon while Daniel remained in the king's court. <clears throat> uh, it's an interesting story. I hope that you were able to follow it. Sometimes we can get bogged down if we hear too much of the Bible at once. We're so used to small bits. But um, if, if you've been able to hear it a lot, it's, it's really good. Um, and I encourage you to listen to it on audio, online, there's sometimes really good readers and then make it more enjoyable. But okay, but now I'm going to make some reflections. So the passage is basically broken into two major forms. The first 13 verses uh, kind of reflect the earthly kingdom and the lurches of political turmoil and anxiety. And the rest of the passage 
um, revealing the full truth of earthly kingdoms in relation to the kingdom of God. Basically, that's it. So I'm going to take a close look at the first 13 verses, then a close look uh, or a systematic look at the 14 to the end. Okay. And then I'm going to have some conclusion. But uh, before I do that, let me give an explanation about the difference between, uh, so I said, you may not make the mistake of a straight correspondence mistake after I've kind of grilled that into you or drilled it into you, but you still might make the state mistake of thinking that the ancient kingdom is like a secular state. A pagan nation is like a secular state. It is not. It is not the same. In the ancient world, religion mixed with politics seamlessly. It was like one thing. Politics and religion were the same difference. Um, thus, the king saw his position as the fate of the gods, the gods' blessing. And as a result, the king had powers of a god. Later on, much later on, the, the kings would say that they were gods or demigods. But at this time, they just had such a connection to the gods that what they spoke was law. So there were no checks and balances. That was something that the Christian church brought later in, later on. So the, the House of Commons and Parliament, uh, the executive, the judicial, the legislative, these are all checks and balances that the early Christian church really helped employ. But they didn't have those checks and balances. And so uh, this absolute political power was tied to religious activity. And to be religious was to be political. Um, so you had to go through the rituals in order to be political. Um, you wanted to go through the rituals in order that the king and your society and your own family might receive the blessing of the gods. And so that's one of the reasons why we can't make a straight correspondence to these current political events. And so it's not a secular state, just so you know. Um, but there are similarities that I'll get to in a minute. Okay, so before uh, I get into some statements, I want to ask some questions. Ask some questions. My first question, let's see if that's what I have. No, sorry. My first question is, why was Nebuchadnezzar's spirit troubled by this dream? Why was Nebuchadnezzar troubled? Why couldn't he sleep? Why was he anxious? I've asked that many times, and many people aren't quite sure why he's troubled by the dream. Outside of it's just weird. It's weird to the modern listener. It's just like a weird dream about a statue, but why should that terrify you? It's because statues represent governments. Remember Saddam Hussein? As soon as he was, as Iraq was occupied and America wanted to try to help spread democracy to Iraq, the first thing they did was to tear down the statues. <clears throat> so, um, you know, dreams in the ancient world, uh, the dreams were often political. Like I said, the religious and the political were so closely tied together that if a king had a dream and they were troubled by the dream, they would call in their advisors to help them interpret the dream because it would have political importance help them make decisions. So you remember when Pharaoh had a dream about fat cows and skinny cows, 
because he needed to make a plan because of a famine coming. Nebuchadnezzar will have another dream and he'll call Daniel in and it's about a tree being cut down. Uh, and so dreams in the ancient world would, and that's why your closest advisors would be dream interpreters. <clears throat> and so he wants to know what's the political meaning of my dream. I see a statue being knocked down. Is that me? Is that my kingdom? Am I going to be killed? So it brings me to a second question. Why does Nebuchadnezzar not tell his closest advisors his dream? Now, they're dream advisors. He calls them in, but he doesn't tell them the dream. Why was he not tell them the dream? Any guesses? He wants to establish their authority. He wants to make sure they're telling the truth? Why would he want to make sure they're telling the truth? Because he wants an accurate assessment. So if they can tell him the dream, then they know he's t- that it's an accurate. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Uh, I think that there's he wants to know that, but there's a reason why he wants to know that they're accurate, that they're that he knows that they can tell the truth. Didn't he say it was very important? Yes, he says it's important. The reason if you have a dream as a political leader and you see your own down potential downfall the people you're not going to tell is your closest advisors, Mm -hmm. especially if you're worried about them. Mm -hmm. Do they have a plan? Is the gods communicating to me to tell me of my betrayal to come? Um, As I said that this is a religious political order and these people are religious people to help with the political order. Magicians, are either Egyptians or Assyrians. And so often these people are also conquered people. So when Judah was conquered, uh, they killed all the leaders, they killed all the rest, but then they kept the, the, the top young Jewish aristocrats. So there's people who could have an issue with you, but you need their wisdom because they're very intelligent and well-read and uh, show lots of wisdom. But are they so wise that they're clever and they've gotten around you? So um, it seems uh, that he has these uh, people who can read entrails, read sicknesses of unhealthy people, do charms and incantations, uh, specialize in stars and esoteric knowledge. They're the ones that he's looking to to give him wisdom. It's like uh, someone looking to witch doctors, tarot readings, and maybe life advice from YouTube influencers. Like, it's like, I need to know how to think about these things. He doesn't want to tell him because he's afraid of his own power. So to put it simply, Nebuchadnezzar is politically anxious about his own power and reign, and he needs advice from these people. These are the people who can give him advice, but he can't trust them. So he's in a pinch. So I know you're telling the truth if you can tell me the dream and its interpretation. I need to know both. Because if you know both, then I know that you're telling the truth and I know that you are my ally. So there's a whole tension of distrust. You know, I don't know if you've ever had that kind of difficult conversation and you're just like, 
you go first. No, you go first. No, you go first. And that's kind of what happens here. So the king is like, uh, so there's this back and forth dialogue that's happening. So this is a little bit of a literary reading of this passage. So the king, I'm not going to read it directly, but I just want to show you how it looks. The, you know, the king's words are on the left and the, the advisors are on the right. And so just listen how this conversation goes. Uh, but I'll, I'll kind of put it up in an upbeat pattern. Okay. So um, I have a dream. It bothered me and I need to know what it means. Long. Oh, why is that? Okay. Sorry. Why is that doing that? Long live the king. Tell us the dream and we'll tell you what it means. No problem, king. We're on your side. I'm serious. If you don't tell me what the dream is and what it means, you'll be torn apart your house destroyed, your family killed. But if you do know what it is and interpret it, I'm going to give you rewards and honors beyond your comprehension. So just tell me what it is and what it means. Um, okay, uh, King, uh, sorry, uh, can you please um, just tell us the dream and we will tell you what it means. Oh, okay, I see what you're doing. You're just stalling time. You know that I'm really serious. So you just want to lie to me? Just going to try to change my mind if I tell you what it is? No, you tell me what the dream is. And then I know that what you're telling me is the truth. No one on earth has ever asked any king, no matter how great, how powerful, no matter what country has ever asked such a thing. It's impossible what you're asking. Not even the God, the, only the gods could tell you but they're not here. Then so he says, die, you know, kill them, kill them. Come on. Kill them, kill them all. Sorry, that was supposed to be dramatic, but it didn't work. <laughs> okay, so what can we make conclusions of the story so far? What conclusions can we make of the first part of the passage? Well, the main thing that I want for us to understand before I talk about its consequences is that it shows political power without any higher authority or law than the political or than the king. The, there is nothing above the king. There is nothing above the law. There is no higher law that you can point to. And when push comes to shove, you find out that there is no real basis for why they believe what they believe, why they do what they do outside of pure, raw power. No one except the gods can tell you your dream and they don't dwell, they do not live here among people. So this is where you see the commonality between the ancient and the modern. When it comes down to it, there's no higher law to which one can appeal within the political sphere. Consider this guy, this, um, um, this guy named Yuval Harari. He wrote a book called Sapiens. We have it in our library if you wanna borrow it. He's an atheist, he's a materialist, which means he only believes that matter exists, nothing more. Um, and so he wants to take to task the preamble of the Declaration of Independence, 
which reads, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. People love that. We appeal to it all the time. But Harari says, this is ridiculous. If we really want to talk about the truth, if we really want to get down to brass tacks, God does not exist, and we all know it. Uh, and so Harari is really into talking about mass illusions, how we can group think and try to believe things aren't true. And so he really wants to push what's really, really, really true. And he goes, if you look at the science, it's meaningless. Uh, we've adapted by illusions, evolutionarily speaking. And he goes, so let's look at the preamble. These truths aren't self-evident that men aren't created, period. And when they're created, they're not created equal. Their cre evolution has to have mutative differences. We have differences, the key, so that we can actually go back and forth as we go higher and further up. So people aren't endowed. It's, un, it's not unalien, oh, unalienable, thank you. Um, and so if these rights are tied to the creator, then we can't say that they're really there. It's rather something that we just believe without proof. So he wanted to rewrite it. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men evolve differently that they are born with certain mutable characteristics and that among these are life and the pursuit of pleasure. Not quite a high ideal. Based upon what do people have dignity? Based upon what do people have equality? And so with this one fell swoop of the truth, uh, where most people are at, he's saying we're living on an illusion. Uh, you know, the International Declaration of Human Rights uh, was drawn up in 1948, and it has even less of a basis. It does not speak about being endowed by a creator. Rather, it says in the aftermath of war, World War II, it says that we just need to have faith that humans have dignity, that humans are born equal based on reason, conscience, and the spirit of brotherhood. But how easily that can disappear or expand. Upon what basis does human dignity rest, should be fought for? Upon what basis should politics be held in check? So you see here that this is to keep the government in check to not take over human rights because it is endowed by their creator. But if you don't have that, then what is there to keep the government from interfering or even contending for human rights? What's the basis, one or the other? Uh, you know, it's interesting that policies uh, for gay rights were based on an appeal to science, born that way. The science wasn't proven, but that was the basis. And yet policies for transgender rights are based on an appeal of social conscience, not biology. 
My point isn't to get into these particular issues, which are the most current and relevant, and that's why I bring them up, not to be controversial, but to ask, upon what basis do we make the right decision? Especially if we make a decision of such great import, and we're choosing two different bases that contradict each other. To what end are we going to stop the proliferation of rights? How far do they go? What are the parameters for knowing? And so when absolute truth is lost, there are consequences. And so these are three consequences I think we see from Daniel chapter two in the first 13 verses. And you can tell me if you agree or disagree. I'm okay about people disagreeing, but I'm right. Okay, I don't know. We'll see. Okay, the first one is that their checks and balances are eroded or just absent. You lose them, just as I was talking about with Harari's preamble, the, the, the original preamble encoded in it was to protect people from the government's overreach. But in Harari's reinterpretation, it, does, it removes that guard, safeguard. Well, what we see here is also the same. There's no checks and balances to Nebuchadnezzar's power. The advisors appeal to reason. No one can do what you're asking. They appeal to custom. No king has ever asked such a thing. They appeal to theology. Only the gods can know and they are not here. And after all these appeals, there's, <laughs> there's too bad to no avail. When there's no higher law, the king is law. Or at least some political elite is law. Those in power are able to decide what is true. The second is political anxiety is another consequence of having political power without anything higher than. So you would think that those who are in power have no fears and no anxieties. But um, they have power to influence. They have power to shape society according to their best opinions, their best thoughts. Um, but they don't point to a higher authority. And because of that, they're only as powerful as their political power can maintain. They're only as powerful as long as they have that power. That means their power is constantly at risk. I don't know. I grew up playing King of the Hill. We stood on hay bales. Those little darn things would topple. But the kids would like try to go up. And as soon as you got on, you're like, yeah, I'm king of the hill. And as soon as you did that, someone pulled your leg down and you swooped down. Right? <laughs> this is political power without a higher authority. It's just the next person who can grab you down. And so it's, it's a political power play. Only with a higher law can someone be judged by if they are doing something good, well. Um, they can appeal to it publicly. These are the things that we believe in. These are the reasons for my decisions. But without a higher law, without a higher authority, the truth behind decisions becomes shrouded. And so I mentioned this book the other day, uh, negatively, but now I'm gonna talk about it positively. Ann Applebaum wrote a book called The Twilight of Democracy, The Seductive Lure of Authoritarianism. 
And she wants to talk about what's happened to democracy. Why are we all fighting for each other? Why are we fighting against each other? And she wants to say, and she said it's basically summarized to wounded egos, media and technological manipulation and pettiness more than we might imagine. Um, I wanna say, yeah, you know what? In some ways that's true. If you don't have a higher authority and you have this anxiety, then the power plays can become petty. Resentment. And these petty feuds can have far reaching effects on society without you knowing what's happening behind closed doors. <clears throat> oh, that was my third point. Wow, I just gave you three points all at once. Okay. <laughs> that means I'm going faster than I thought. Okay, so here with Nebuchadnezzar and his advisors, we see that there's no higher authority. And so we have no way of knowing the king's mind or no way of discerning the times. So you can't understand what's in the mind of the, power, the powerful. And it's hard to know how to discern the times without any higher authority. And so all we're left with is political anxiety that can have a massive social impact. In such a society, how might we respond? Julia likes political anxiety. She just thinks it's <laughs> hilarious. Um, oh, okay. Okay, so let's get to the second part. So how might the faithful Christian engage? Uh, just to start and saying the faithful Christian may have confidence because they can trust in a God who cannot be dethroned. That's the whole point. The faithful Christian can have hope and confidence in the God who cannot be dethroned. Um, but due to time constraints, I'm not going to go into that deep literary reading of the rest of the passage, though I love to do that. Okay, so first I want to look at, uh, so I have three points, I think, within the second um, section. Uh, passive activity, the kingdom of God with no hands, and the concept of co-belligerence. Oh, and the long view of history. So there's four. Okay, so passive activity. Um, it means that uh, Daniel has a choice. He could revolt, retreat, or respond. Those are the three ways of, um, of acting. Revolt, retreat, or respond. Now, Daniel could have revolted and fought against the Babylonians. The Maccabeans did that. The Zealots did it in AD 70. Christians have done it. Because he could be ticked off about what the Babylonians did. And he wants to just fight back. Oh, you're going to kill me? I'm going to go down with my guns blazing or my sword blazing. I'm not sure. <laughs> Wooden sword blazing. Um, but he could also have retreated, as many Christians have done as well. Uh, people have retreated into monasteries or into communes to retreat from engaging the world. They want to be far from the storms of, quote unquote, the world. And so what we would say of these people are they are too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. They're just trying to preserve themselves, go into the catacombs, some modern catacomb. And 
And when that happens, Karl Marx is right to say that religion is the opiate for the masses. It's like opium. It makes you lazy because if you believe about some far off kingdom, then you'll never be politically active now. But the problem with Marx is that he is like, let's do away with the heaven, the kingdom of God, and it's all political action now. And so that's, and it was his thought that influenced Christians in the liberation theological movements in Latin and South Americas. Um, And there's uh, where they fought for land, they fought for power, and there was bloodshed. Christians fighting on the basis of the Bible had bloodshed. Um, There's a lot to say there, but I won't. But Daniel does not revolt. He does not retreat. But he responds, oh, by the way, I put up, you know, I like to find images and (laughs) I wrote priests guns and I found uh, I just had to show you. I had to share this that the Catholic priests were taking the holy water during infant baptism christenings and they were shooting water pistols at the babies (laughs) to be safe from covid. <laughs> but the gun has holding sacred water. I don't know if that makes the spray gun. I don't know if it makes the the water gun holy. But oh, oh my goodness! Okay, let's get back to me. So, what does Daniel do? He doesn't fight back. He doesn't run for the hills. He hurries and goes to Arioch, the, uh, the king's um, kind of captain to kill. Uh, and he asks if he can have an audience with the king. And when he's given permission, he runs and prays with his friends. Uh, and prayer and praying with friends is actually a response. But you have to notice that he ran and said, I want to talk to the king before he went to go pray. He didn't just go home and pray and sit on his hands, hoping for an audience with the king. He went and asked for it, then went and prayed and said, God, I put myself in a position. You're going to have to help us out. Um, Now, he may have been in a situation like um, Esther. It's like if she doesn't act, she's going to die. So maybe Daniel's like, well, it's better than nothing. I got to try. I don't know what's going to happen. I trust that God can do this. I just don't know if he will. But Daniel says, give me a chance. And then he goes and prays. So the Christian is unlike the one who has no higher law, because the Christian can go to someone who has spoken and speaks, has gone to God, who has acted and acts. You know, Jesus told his disciples not to worry about being pulled in front of governors and whatnot, because the spirit will lead you and give you the word you need. So Jesus follows a similar advice to what Daniel followed in his heart, that he trusted that God had something to say to him. And he didn't just look to the Mosaic law and said, I have a Bible interpretation for you, O great King Nebuchadnezzar, but rather based on the hope he had from the scriptures, went and prayed for something new, new wisdom, and God gave it to him. 
And so God was faithful and told Daniel the inner workings of uh, his mind. Um, don't know if I have this in the right place, but God was faithful. And so if you saw in that poem in the middle of the story, it says, God to whom belong wisdom and might have given me wisdom and might. So we go to God to give us what he has in plenty and that we might have. But closely tied to this is, um, is that Daniel sees in this dream that the kingdom of God is not a human achievement. He's not passive. He's not overly active. He's, he's just depending on God in order to act, trusting in God as he takes quiet steps forward, trusting that God will act for him and with him and in him and through him. But the other thing is that he sees in this revelation that the kingdom of God is not a human achievement. It reads in verse 44, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. This kingdom that was not shaped by human hands. And so it's important for the Christian to understand this, that neither the state nor the church should ever be identified as the kingdom of God. The state can never be the kingdom of God. The church can never be the kingdom of God. Now, the state or the church may serve the kingdom of God, um, but they should never be confused as exactly the same thing. But in the church, we're more concentrated on focusing on serving the king and seeing his kingdom realized. But we are not the kingdom itself. <clears throat> the kingdom of God is in our midst, but it doesn't mean that we are the kingdom of God in the same way, especially when we have a visible church. There's also something called the invisible church, those who truly trust God, but the, the political and the organizational structure of the church should never be confused as the kingdom of God. So what this means is that the Christian is relieved. Whoops. Oh, I'll tell you about that in a minute. Um, is that what it means is that the Christian may be relieved that they do not have to accomplish something that God will accomplish. They simply have to participate in what God's calling them to be. They're simply having to be faithful to what God's calling us to do. But that doesn't mean that we're establishing the kingdom of God in our own power. In fact, that's dangerous. And so that means that the Christian, in spite of what they see governments do, do not have to be politically anxious. Now, that doesn't mean we, we can't be anxious about certain policies that are passed that infringe upon religious freedoms or the suffering that they can cause to their own people. But rather, I'm saying that Christians do not have to get politically anxious, that we don't have to join in the political power plays, grabbing for power, because we know that God, in the end, will have the final word. That means Christians don't need to take over the capital to make it godly, for instance. And so for Daniel, it must be been uh, an encouragement to trust that God's power cannot be overturned in the midst of such crisis. 
Although he and his friends and the nation of God's people have been conquered by Babylon, Babylon will not have the final word because Daniel sees kingdoms will rise and fall, rise and fall. But in the end, the kingdom of God will be established forever. And God will bring us into that kingdom. And probably it's also an encouragement to Daniel that he does not need to establish it in his own power. In God responding to Daniel's prayer, Daniel has found himself before the king. It's in his act of faithfulness that a lowly Jewish exile has a front seat to talk to the king, to the powers that be, and he's able to proclaim the gospel, proclaim the truth of God's kingdom to the king that stands before him who has uttered threats. Daniel would not have had this opportunity had he retreated or revolted, but that he was faithful in trying to and following God where God had called him to be at that time. And it's interesting, it must have been an irony to Daniel to realize that the one who gave Nebuchadnezzar the dream was God himself. That no matter how powerful a king is, they're defenseless when they close their eyes and fall asleep. God has the power over dreams and imagination. So we can pray that God can orchestrate such things in the minds of leaders. But God orchestrated this whole event and and Daniel's faithfulness is able to stand before Nebuchadnezzar and speak the truth. And because Daniel has been able to tell Nebuchadnezzar his mind and his political fate, Nebuchadnezzar gives him honor. It's amazing. So Daniel is never the hero of the story. It's always mistold when it is. God is the hero that blesses Daniel through it, through Daniel's simple faithfulness. And Daniel calls his friends to help him serve in the king's courts. Now, this might seem to you an ungodly compromise. If Nebuchadnezzar's court is not religiously neutral, how, and there's no modern sense of the freedom of conscience, how can Daniel in good conscience before God and in faithfulness serve in Nebuchadnezzar's court, a religious political entity? How can he do it when uh, it's an idolatrous nation? He wants to seek the welfare of the people who just attacked his own people. How do we resolve this conflict? Uh, There's a concept that Francis Schaeffer said is co-belligerence, co-belligerence. What Schaeffer means, I'm going to actually expand. And I think if he were um, with us today, um, he would agree with me. (laughs) Um, so the christian before i get to the concept the how to understand the concept the christian often thinks of seeking the welfare of the nation as an all or nothing it's a christian nation or to be damned with it sometimes it's hard to find the middle line revolt or retreat But listen to this. Consider what God tells Daniel to say to Nebuchadnezzar. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, 
and the might and the glory into to whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Now, that's an interesting way of talking to the pagan king. Where have you heard these words before? The Lord's Prayer? In what way? That's right. It sounds like God's kingdom, right? Uh, at the end of the Lord's Prayer. Where else have you heard these types of things? Genesis 1. Genesis 1. Ooh. Given God gave to Adam and Eve. You've also hear it in Psalm 8. In Psalm 8, when the psalmist is talking to God about the place of humanity on creation, in creation, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. So words that are given by God to Adam and Eve, words given by God to the psalmist for all humanity, is this, um, particularly the Israelite, is now giving those same words to a pagan king. Someone who doesn't know God, someone who doesn't even care about the God of Israel or the Most High God. So how are we to understand this? Well, one, it means that God has put him there, okay? God has put him there. And he can remove Nebuchadnezzar just as quickly as he removed the Judeans from their land. Nebuchadnezzar will only remain insofar as he is faithful to God's command to humanity. Nebuchadnezzar's rule is tentative dependent on God's favor, not on political power. It also means that we can understand why Daniel can serve Nebuchadnezzar in order to fulfill God's mandate for creation. This does not mean that Daniel needs to do all that Nebuchadnezzar says. We'll see in the rest of Daniel that there's life and death situations where he refuses. But it does mean that Daniel can serve Nebuchadnezzar, serve Babylon, and serve creation by seeking faithfulness um, to God in their midst. So now we can kind of consider what co-belligerence means. Um, instead of an all or nothing reproach, the Christian may seek reform insofar as they are able. Uh, so that, that you're tending to society through policy, local action, or word toward God's creational purposes. And you may do that with people who totally do not believe in the gospel or even hate the gospel. Um, you know, recently Christians and feminists stood together against uh, transgender rights because of their impact on bathroom usage in Title IX. It's an unholy alliance. Not to say that feminism and Christianity cannot fit, but the type of radical feminism and evangelical Southern Baptists working together. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> Very unholy alliance. Uh I have a friend, a colleague at Brazil, and he worked for the Human Rights Commission in Brazil in the, in the political upper echelons. 
And the one person he worked with was a transgendered woman. And they were trying to, and the reason he took the job is because he was allowed to hammer out rights to preserve religious freedoms. And as he worked with this transgendered woman, they were able to try to uh, contend for sexual freedoms without eclipsing religious freedoms. And so he knew that he wouldn't be able to go all the way that he wanted to go, but he would be able to make some reform to preserve religious freedoms. This is co-belligerence, seeking out God's purposes within a compromising way, but trying to tend what's wrong toward what God most desires. And of course, you don't have to just see it in politics. Uh, I always think of Julia when she was a nurse in the downtown east side. Uh, it was amazing. I, I watched these. Um, it was really one of the first times I was confronted by the amazing kindness and sacrifices by people who weren't Christian. They were Buddhist and atheist nurses. And they, along with Julia, contended for the humanity of their clients, contended for the humanity of patient care. And so they worked extra hours. That's co-belligerence. And so we may find co-belligerence in technology, modern science, modern medicine, corporate law, any area of life you can imagine. But along with this, if it's that steady reform, then implied in that is that we need to take a longer view. There's no quick fix. This passage is talking about an immediate crisis that needs to be overcome, but in a context of where there will be generations upon generations, nations after nations. I mean, the only thing that the Christian knows as really immediate in terms of the kingdom of God is when Christ returns. It'll be like a thief in the night, like lightning. But on that long trajectory toward it, it is slow. We need to learn to take the long view of history. I mean, David had the privilege, if I can say that, um, to see four or three nations come and go. He served different kings with different religious affiliations, but he was able to serve them. Daniel, did I say that? Oh, Daniel. I mean, imagine that working in three or four different nations. I mean, the turmoil that you must have experienced. And Daniel seems to also have been the steadying presence for the people. <clears throat> Daniel sought the welfare of the Babylonian and the other nations, even though he knew they would fall. He wanted to help the welfare of the Babylonian nation, even though his dream told him it would fall. That's the opposite of political anxiety. When you say, what do we want? Justice. When do we want it? Now. That's a political anxiety demanding immediate results. The Christian doesn't have to get into that. It doesn't mean that we can't contend for rights. It doesn't mean we can't contend for more immediate action, but we don't have to become anxious about such things. So this dream and interpretation shows that God's truth and God's kingdom cannot be overthrown. Truth will bear it out, even if it takes a few generations to see it. So, I mean, that's what Peter, Paul, and the early church understood. They were willing to die because they knew Christ would bear it out.
truth would be realized, even if it wasn't with their, in their time period. They were not anxious because they knew God's reign could not be dethroned. And so they just wanted to be God's people bearing witness to his everlasting kingdom by what they said and by what they did. Um, and what's amazing about this story is really its ultimate fulfillment. Um, while people interpret times and dates in various ways of Daniel, the conclusion is the same that Jesus Christ initiated and established the kingdom of God through his life, his death on the cross, his resurrection, and his ascension. He initiated the kingdom of God through stones not cut by human hands. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that the Magi, who were looking for the Christ child, the king of the Jews, are very likely Babylonians who had prophecy about it. So it's likely, in my opinion, that Daniel's prophetic word in the high courts became common adage. And the Magi went to go look for the Christ child. Maybe they looked for a while, but they read the stars. And so Daniel's interpretation from God bore, bore out um, in a special kind of way that Jesus would be the realization of his prophecy. And when the Magi come and they see what kind of kingdom, this one that rises in there and crushes the other nations, is Jesus, who demonstrates his kind of reign by humbling himself, calling weary people to himself, speaking to the powers, dying and rising on their behalf, and encouraging people to follow. It's a very different kind of political power that Jesus demonstrates. That's why I get so irritated by this picture. This is supposed to be the kingdom of God coming in and destroying the other nations. It looks kind of like a missile. So I'm not sure. And I looked for so many images and I could not find one that seemed kind of true to the intent of the passage. So if anyone's painters, Liz, um, we need to have some good imagination about what Daniel 2 can look like because there's not a single one on the internet. There's not a painting in history that I found, not even an abstract painting that I found that conveyed the sense that uh, God's kingdom is to come through Jesus in the way that he did. Um, before I conclude, let me say one more thing. It's not in my notes, but do you know how Daniel 3 begins? Is anyone Bible test? It's the statue. The very first thing in the next story is that Daniel, uh, that Nebuchadnezzar builds a statue of gold for himself. So you can see in all the wisdom that Daniel has to give him, Nebuchadnezzar is like, that's a great idea. I'm going to make it into gold, all of it. And you know what? My children can deal with the mess because it's not going to be in my time period. My nation will follow some other time. So it's kind of like Hezekiah. He's like, well, you know, okay, I got God's favor. At least it's not going to hurt me. 
you know, not thinking of generations upon generations later, where that's the very opposite of Daniel and God's people and the Christians is to think, no, the genera- generations upon generations, I still have hope that God establishes his truth, his power, his kingdom. Okay, so now let me um, give you my concluding reflections. So as I said, it's dangerous to make straight correlations um, from this passage to today's political events. But it's important to take this story from God as a way of understanding our cultural moment and how we might stand in it. And for us to have a way of dialoguing about how Christians can engage society, uh, a society that has largely forgotten God and his higher law. Uh, I met a woman. uh, She's an atheist and she was attending church. This was last year, like right when parties were allowed for a little bit. Um, and she said that she was going to church, but she was an atheist. And I said, why would you start going to church? She didn't have any kind of come to Jesus moment. What she said was, I just need something that is an answer to secularism. There's nothing power enough, powerful enough to have a word to secularism. And she saw that secularism could not give her hope beyond the immediate. It did not give her answers. It did not help her read the times. It did not help her understand herself or her own heart. And so she knew that the church proclaimed a message that had more substance and that people had held on to it in spite of persecutions and oppressions. Or whatever one might think about the protests in Ottawa, people are becoming Christians in front of the parliament building. People are longing for something more than what they can see among the politically powerful. Yes. People are longing for something that cannot be overthrown, that seeks the welfare of society without being caught up in its power plays. So Daniel 2 is an encouragement to Christians to trust in God, who changes times and seasons, who removes kings and sets up kings, He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what's in the darkness and the light dwells with him. So knowing this, the Christian can stave off political anxiety and work towards God's kingdom in prayer, in trust, and in wise words and action. Um, It's not always easy to say what that is, but the Christian does have one who speaks and who can guide. Okay, so this is a time for discussion. We can have a discussion in here uh, and also those on online. Brett? Yeah, just a comment. I had a, so an article written by a 99-year-old uh, former head of theological college, uh, Jim Houston, who's writing these, these, these fabulous messages from his, from his deathbed. Uh, he says, uh, he talks about the importance of dreams in the Bible, and he says that uh, there are more than 700 references in the scriptures to dreams. The prophets could never have done the ministry without this Bible guidance, mm. and so on. So just to, to, to let you know that, to, to back up. That dreams were not only important to ancient kingdoms, but they're important to God. Yeah, thank you. And in fact, I would say uh, on a personal note that dreams have been very informative to me. Um, I won't go into it right now, but... Um, 
and for a while, I thought maybe it was a little bit too charismatic um, <laughs> because I'm not one given to that. But, uh, but I have found dreams very instructive. And I've read, you know, in Jeremiah, I think it is, it says that God can sometimes send troubling dreams in order to correct his loved ones back onto a right path. And I've experienced that as well. Um, and sometimes I just have dreams that make no sense. Um, but, but I have found powerful uh, power in dreams, uh, though I don't always understand what they are. Sometimes I have understood. That's right. When I dream in French, I'm like, I have no idea why I'm speaking in tongues in my dream. Uh, you know, and Muslims, you know, a lot of Muslims meet Jesus in their dreams. So dreams is a powerful sphere of God's work. Uh, yes, Lord. Uh, so do you think then... And then you said not to put too much emphasis on modern, but no, we can talk about it. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, do you think he is went down too much the the rebellion, the revolt, said, the revolt side, or do you think did Bonhoeffer go too much into revolt? That was specific. To yeah, I think it's very particular to the circumstances. Right. You know, sometimes we want to decry oppression, oppression, oppression when Christians may actually be deluding themselves as overly persecuted than we are. We actually have many, many freedoms, but there's a real persecution happening to Christians around the world as we speak. Because um, he would have at some point said something to that effect that, or like he didn't say, he didn't say God's got this in control in the sense of long view of history yet. I don't know. Maybe did Bonhoeffer uh, not take the long view of history as it regards to Hitler? Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, Carla, you know, on the computer would know much more about Bonhoeffer because um, that's her specialty. But from my understanding is that Bonhoeffer saw that um, millions and millions of Jews were being killed. Uh, society was being so deeply um, oppressed by this totalitarian regime, um, dissenters being killed, that I, that I believe that he felt that maybe it wasn't the most faithful act, but the most necessary act, and that he thought it was a lesser evil, from what I understand of what he was thinking. Um, I don't know. I, I go back and forth. I've never been put in that position, mm, yeah. and I don't know what I would do. Um, yeah. uh, I know that others did different things like Corey Tin Boom and their family is that they just tried to rescue the Jews that they knew and the people that were kind of, um, the marginalized by mm -hmm. Nazis. Uh, and they disagreed on if they should lie or not about yeah, that. And her sister, her sister yeah. was like, let me not tell a lie, Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, which it ended up working once, but the second time got them in concentration camp, but they survived. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I, I would have to say, I don't know that type of intensity in how I would respond, but I think that we need to withhold revolt. Um, you know, there's sometimes um, governments that won't allow anything but revolt, any kind of 
proclaiming the gospel, any type of welcoming the stranger is an act of rebellion. And at that point, I say we have to rebel. But if, um, if, but we might be pulling the trigger too early, you know? And so, you know, there were people asking me, should, you know, should um, churches were closed, yoga centers, gyms, and bars were open. The logic behind that is that Bonnie Henry said that whether you believe her or not, um, but her logic was that Christians tend to hug each other, have a much closer affinity and relationship with the people that they gather with each week. Um, whereas you don't see that with the yoga, the bars and other things and gyms. And I don't see a lot of people hugging at the gym. So she's probably <laughs> right. Um, there's an argument there, but for me, when was the last time you were at the gym? Yeah, exactly. Do you need to ask? Or a bar. You know what? I have nothing to say. Um, but, but I wanted to say in that moment, because some people felt that it was the right act to meet in defiance of these masks or these closures. And my question was, is it the same thing as the underground church of China? Right. I say no, because Christians could, because we are so bent on programs and services that we did not think of ways around that the church might gather as a people. We kept thinking of building rather than gathering as a people. And I think that pastors were trying to maintain programs and services and just translated them online rather than thinking, let's meet in the backyard with five to 10 people. Let's go meet the person who's locked in. Uh, maybe they could have functioned as the church in that situation. So I'm like, and so I'm answering the Bonhoeffer question in this way to saying, okay, what steps have we taken before we just revolt? And sometimes it's so easy to revolt before asking those other questions. Um, and, you know, churches, uh, as you know, you know, recovery church, how can we, uh, how can we start helping people in recovery? Uh, that was a brilliant way of saying, okay, we're going to abide by the law, but still function as the people of God. Um, and, you know, so it's not the same thing as Nebuchadnezzar or Hitler. But, um, but we do need to always ask, is there a step before? Was there a step prior for Bonhoeffer than assassination? I think probably so, but I don't know. I've never been in that situation. Tried to, um, his dad was a uh, psychologist. Bonhoeffer's dad was a psychologist? And he, they tried to get him Hitler. Uh, um, Reverse psychology? No, um, diagnosed <laughs> as uh, clinically insane. Oh, the, going into Czechoslovakia. Wow. They tried to say that he was clinically insane, and but something happened and he foresaw. Oh, interesting. That was, the, that was their way of trying to work it around. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yes. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. I like that as a, as a Christian way. And, and Paul working the system, I'm a Roman. Mm. So there's nothing wrong with working the system within the legal framework. Right. But how can, but does it actually we should think creatively rather than saying, no, we want to stay the way we are and the, 
state should recognize that. Right. Friends saying, no, it's not obstructing us from acting. And so Paul would sometimes say doors were closed. Rather than barricading the door, he went the other way and God would bless him. Uh, through Acts, uh, the more the oppression, the more the prisons, they kept being pushed down and squeezed out, pushed down and squeezed out. And that actually is how the story of Acts goes, mm -hmm. that the spread was through the oppression rather than them just like going place to place to place. Right. But they are being squeezed across the world. And, uh, and so the gospel is powerful. Um, mm -hmm. And they weren't revolting. They were put in prison. And then they were like, let go. And they were just like, we're still here. Mm -hmm. You know? Um, so yeah, I, I think that we need to think creatively and cautiously before just revolting and rebelling. Right. But so, Jesus was a re revolutionary. Uh, he believed in nonviolent revolution. Well, yeah, I mean, we can use the term revolution in that way. Um, but was well, rebelling against, you know, all the scribes and, and, and the Pharisees, but, but more so the, the everybody the, uh, who ruled in the temple and we were getting rich off, you know, off the, uh, off the temple and off the backs of the poor in particular. Right. I mean, it was a different kind of revolution that he Ooh. brought about a different kind of political revolution. What I mean in this in this lecture is revolution as taking up arms and having a coup. Um, but yes, I well, mean, think a little bit of the truck convoy in this, mm -hmm. you know, where primarily, you know, it didn't <coughs> work out the way they wanted it, but it, it was to be a nonviolent revolution, if you like. Right. I mean, nonviolent forms of protests. Mm -hmm. uh, Christians have been very famous for that throughout history, and those have been effective protests, uh, especially with Martin Luther King. You know, he did nonviolent um, protests in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And what my understanding is what really got the civil rights movement going is when the media was covering these black people and these um, sympathizers being sprayed by the hoses. Mm -hmm. And when that when people saw that, there was a lot of movement for mm -hmm. the civil rights. And so it wasn't them like, but if they took up arms like Malcolm X was suggesting. Yeah. Then, uh, then I think it could have been much more uh, hurtful to the movement. Yeah, Rosa Parks. Now, in the beginning, I mean, in the end, there was still questions of, well, did Martin Luther King do enough? And that's the question being asked now. Uh, Nonviolence is great, but it only gets you so far. Uh, but, but I would disagree with needing to push too hard. But there just, but there does need to be some push within the legal framework. Abigail. Um, I'm, sh I'm unsure if you uh, address this or not, but so when Daniel, had he had a dream, had he interpreted dreams before at this point? Daniel had not interpreted dreams before, no. Okay, so do we know whether he um, was just like fatalistic, I'm going to die either way, so king, I'm going to, you know, like just, or did he have some kind of spiritual unction? So did Daniel have a kind of a fatalistic attitude or did he have spiritual unction? I think it was spiritual unction because he runs to Arioch before he has an answer from God. Mm -hmm. um, if he was simply fatalistic, he would say, well, all my family died. And I guess I'm going to join them in the dirt, but he didn't. He's like, no, I'm going to contend for this. And so he went and says, can I have an audience with the king? I will tell him the dream and its interpretation, which was impossible for him to know. And he knew it was impossible. 
but he also knew that God could give him what was impossible. And so uh, I believe that it was an unction to say, I believe that God's people will be preserved for what God has done to us in the past. Mm -hmm. And um, he has spoken, and I trust that he will speak to me. So I don't think he was fatalistic. I think he had a deep trust. Maybe that's not the right word, but um, yeah, whether he just, yeah, I'm not sure what to do. I'm not sure if God's going to come through, but I'll talk to the king or talk to, what's his name? Ariel. And go pray and see. Or if he's like, had that stirring inside that, okay, Lord's doing something. I need to go talk to the king. Like, yeah, I don't know if Daniel had a stirring um, or just trusted, almost like a leap of saying, I know God can, I just don't know if he will. Or he says, God is pushing me to go. My guess is that is probably the former, that he probably thinks, I know he can, I'm not sure he will. Because usually when God moves people in the Bible, in a specific way, it says God moved them typically but that's not a guarantee yeah. of what happened within daniel because kind of like shadrach meshach and bednego they're like even if god doesn't save us exactly yeah shadrach meshach and bednego said when they were being put in the fiery pit in daniel 3 and saying our god can save us even if he doesn't he reigns and so uh yeah throughout daniel it, it's very interesting to see um, that trust that God sits on the throne. There's very little reference. There's almost no reference to the Mosaic law. The God of Israel is never mentioned. It's always the God of heaven, the God of my ancestors, the most high God. Uh, and so it's really almost Christians talking about God in a very non-particular way. <laughs> But what's that? Well, I was just thinking of Paul when he talks to the Jews versus when he talks That's to right. the area of Pagus, I think it is. Yeah, yeah. So when he's talking to the Jews, he speaks about, um, he starts with the Mosaic law and tells the story of the covenant. Mm. But with the Gentiles, he might start with Epicurus or, you know, Stoic poetry or something like this, um, the unknown God. Yeah. So, yeah, in a similar way, Daniel is... Uh, reflecting this most high God in a culture that has a hard time recognizing. Uh, yeah. I mean, just to add to this, just as a, if anyone wants to geek out that, you know, they had all these gods, but they always had a notion of a most high God, but who is this most high God? So, you know, in the Greco Roman, it was the unknown God in that area. Um, in Africa, they have the most high God and they have a name for that God, but then they have a, they have names for all the tribal gods and the nature gods. Uh, and so it's interesting that Daniel is always referring to the most high God and how this God acts toward the Jewish people, particularly, which kind of gives indication that the most high God is on the side of the Jewish people, the exiles, even if they don't give his name away as Yahweh. They don't have temple practices. They may not even have a manuscript of the Torah, just what they've learned in their hearts. Um, hmm. You've mentioned at the beginning about separation of church and state. And I think that is something that's really been intentionally misconstrued 
if you like, you know, in thinking that, I mean, the idea was, I think, to keep, I think, as much to protect the church as anything, to keep, you know, the power, the power, political power being gained, but through the church, you know, you get a high position in the church, now you have political power. But now they've it, it almost made it that if you're a Christian, you should not have a voice, mm -hmm. you know, within a democracy. Yeah, I mean, the relation between the church and state has always been um, a tenuous one and ever changing one. I mean, I still remember coming up to Canada and I was I came here when Jean Chrétien was prime minister and then Paul Martin. But uh, when Stephen Harper ran, I remember like a paparazzi like picture of him walking into a church mm -hmm. on a Sunday morning. And it was like an expose. Yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> one of my favorite scenes and i think it's parks and rec and she really likes this guy a lot and she sees him walk into a church and she's like oh <laughs> and she confronts him i didn't know you were a christian he's like oh no 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 i was just going to aa and she's like oh thank goodness <laughs> <laughs> but you know that's the kind of how it is in canada where there's this, a real disregard a distrust a dislike of the christian church and uh, any mention of God, you, you don't see it. Diefenbaker was like the last one who invoked, you know, Jesus in a speech in the 50s. But the secularization happened so fast in Canada. And I wonder if it was because the Catholic Church had so much power over the government, understood itself as the kingdom of God, that it didn't give that breathing room. It was almost like a very oppressive parent religious well, parents Quebec, but i'm not sure about the rest of the country oh well, maybe well and then but i meet so many people i hear it's amazing how many people i've talked to who grew up catholic grew up anglican that aren't christians anymore mm -hmm. and was it just nominalization that happened uh i think maybe not maybe there uh there was something that they weren't given the full story or the substance of the gospel mm -hmm. so they never had a chance to believe and now they're just burnt by it without ever getting a chance to hear the gospel. Um, and so I think separation in church and state is very important. Yeah, more for the protection of the church than the state. I think for both, because for both, I do believe yeah, that. I say primarily for the protection of the church, because yeah. every time the church becomes a road to political power, the church has failed. Right. And I, yeah, I mean, and when I see Christian churches in America, I, I do not like uh, kind of political pandering that happens out of the pulpit. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's the right place. Even if I agree with the person that yeah, they have there, yeah. I just don't think it's right. Um, and I mean, because the pastor is not there to direct the people along partisan lines. They're to direct them with the full counsel of God and allowing these people in the freedom of their conscience to choose. Um, and, and people choose for different reasons, you know. Uh, it's very difficult in the States, for instance. You mm -hmm. can, uh, you know, as a Christian, I'm uh, anti-abortion, pro-environment, anti-guns, uh, pro-biblical um, education, even in schools. Like, where does that put me, you know? Well, it makes you fanatical. <laughs> you know, it, that, but that, it doesn't I think I don't think you are but if but, I'm talking to a congregation of people who have these different political beliefs uh, then they might want to choose differently or maybe there's a particular law mm -hmm. that they think is more important than the other 
And I want to allow them to vote for freedom of conscience and then try to give them the whole counsel of God. Even as I talk in Daniel 2. Last time I, I did this lecture, I was really talking a lot about Trump because people wanted to make the connection between Nebuchadnezzar and Trump. And, and I didn't want to do that. But now you have it with Trudeau. And so it's so easy. <laughs> I don't know if y'all heard that, but I'm not going to repeat it. <laughs> Um, one of the things in the states, though, that is this, I guess, sort of an outside observer, is that there's a bit of an unholy alliance between uh, people's Christianity, uh, their politics, and their nationalism, and sort of a blend of the three, I think, in a lot of cases. Yeah, I mean, the but Bible calls us to be resident, or there's a phrase by a guy named Stanley Hauerwas. He's an Anabaptist. But he has a wonderful book um, sorry, that I like mostly. Stanley Hauerwas, okay, yeah. and he wrote a book called Resident Aliens, mm -hmm. and he picks it up from Peter's letter and talking about uh, as he's as Peter's writing to the Christians that are in a diaspora and saying uh, these Jewish Christians that um, that they are resident aliens, that they have been sent away from their countries where they grew up. They're familiar with, but you are citizens of a higher kingdom. But calling them resident aliens in a sense that your, your citizen ultimate citizenship ultimately belongs to the kingdom of God. But you also have a temporary citizenship in the nation you find yourself. Mm -hmm. And much like Jeremiah, seek the welfare of the nation you find yourself in, of Babylon. Just go into exile and seek the welfare of that nation. Because it's not your ultimate nation. So I don't think it's wrong to be patriotic. No. But it is wrong when we hold our patriotism as an idol, as something equal to the kingdom of God, um, or to blend our nation as something that needs to be Christianized, um, you know, like a template of what God wants. Uh, I think that can be very dangerous. But well, I think that a lot of people in the States, if you're Christian, you're a Republican, you know, and uh, you're a very much America first and everything yeah. like that, you know. Um, I think that's an assumption. You know, obviously it's not always true, but uh, well, if it was people if, start with that. Yeah, I mean, if you assume that, then Biden wouldn't have won. I mean, you can debate that, I guess. But my point is that, you know, it's like 50-50. And I mean, I'm an American, I go home and there's divisions all over the place on what people think about every issue. So it's not clear cut. And but and canadians are very patriotic they're just very quiet about it <laughs> they just look at you with their patriotism <laughs> <laughs> sipping their their tims with their timbits glaring over uh at least we're better than you patriotism um yeah it's uh we have to we want to seek the welfare of our nation and that's good and right. Mm -hmm. But sometimes the Bible needs to call into question our political alliances or because sometimes we're unthinking politically. Mm -hmm. We just want to do the rubber stamp. You know, I'm going to vote the same as my parents did because, you know, um, or you recite the mantras or you get so worked up about a particular issue. It's like, okay, let's, let's look at um, how are we to think more broadly and more deeply about what the kingdom requires of us mm -hmm. and, and what does it require of my fellow Christian and how might we stand alongside one another as one in Christ 
as both citizens of the kingdom and we divide deeply over politics, earthly politics. We need to be thankful. We need to be thoughtful of that. Uh, and it's tricky. Yeah. Well, I think because this freedom convoy thing really yeah. is a good example because it took an incredible amount of work to figure out what the truth was about it. And right. We probably still don't know, but one side or the other didn't have it all, all the truth. That's for sure. I mean, that's right. The, the mainstream media didn't. And, but, you know, if you tried to follow it on their Facebook page or wherever else or True North or something else, they didn't either because they have their biases, like you say, and they kind yeah, of, that's right. Yeah. You know, they're, they're playing to their biases um, uh, in this, the parasitic mind. Dad said, he's like saying about how like we have our convictions and we're like, we're kind of stuck in them and people can bring evidence against those convictions, but it's extremely hard to, to get you to see. A, a yeah. Truth that's called confirmation bias Yeah, is that we see the evidence for what we want to believe. You know, Lloyd was just saying that there, uh, like with the truck convoy, really hard to know all the information and all the situation clearly, because different uh, types of, uh, if you looked on more mainstream, more left-leaning news, you're going to only hear about the destruction, racism, misogyny, misogyny, blah, blah, blah. You turn to more independent or right-leaning channels and you're going to be like true patriots and um uh you know freedom lovers and there's no there's all peace mm -hmm. uh which i actually mostly believe but then if you look at you know their own pages you get a muddle opinion about okay what are they actually the in particular organizers I mean, how many of those it's not like one organizer but they would say the organizer of the freedom Com but it's actually an organizer of a subset mm -hmm. And, and maybe they have racist views. And so how do we, and then not only that, is that the Trump convoy became representative of so many convictions and desires for the government to do something. Mm -hmm. And so it was just about truckers vaccinations or non-vaccinated status uh, and, or mandates, where it became about mass mandates, about freedom, it's about Trudeau. Um, <laughs> and so, it became some. It became something very widespread, and very hard to pigeonhole, and so that's why someone can be for the truck convoy and against the convoy, and maybe be for or against different things. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, it is difficult um, to know. I mean, I think it does expose certain cracks in our leadership, and that became more and more apparent as the process continued whatever you think about the convoys. But, um, but yeah, it's Christians need to have a lot of patience and forbearance with their fellow brothers and sisters as they try to work out these issues together in their nation. But That's what it was lacking. It was lacking forbearance. Yeah, well, I mean, it's created so many divisions, mm. you know, with families, you know, and mm. it's just awful. It has. It has, you know, even as we're here at Labrie, I mean, Liz, Julia and I disagree. Um, they're on the opposite sides and I'm, I'm uh, the one that's the golden mean, um, the best dance, but we all work it out and Don as well, but we're all working it out of how can we live together, not just as Christians, but practically organizationally 
as we navigate these things. <clears throat> it just takes work, but we really, but we have a basis. Right. We have a basis of the gospel, which really changes things rather than just saying, um, you know, on the basis of some power play or some suggested power play. And we would go, get nowhere really fast. And that's, I think that relates to what Lisa Christian was saying last time, too, just about reconciliation through Jesus, that that was actually a possibility, that you know, Jews and Gentiles, mm. slave and free, male and female, there is possi possible reconciliation through Jesus. Yeah, like as Lisa, mm -hmm. uh, what Liz said is, as Lisa Christian said mm -hmm. two weeks ago, that racial reconciliation is possible, that only through the gospel might we have um, overcome the barriers of slave and uh, Greek or master, you have male, female, um, and on and on, Jew, Gentile. So. We live in a secular society, you know, and, and so many people don't have that, you know, a sense that, you know, and you, you wind up with splits in families, uh, you know, not speaking to each other. I mean, uh, I know we do have that really gone on the rocks because, you know, yeah, we That's do see splits in families. And, you know, uh, some churches haven't seen splits. They just seen people disappear and new ones join. Mm -hmm. That's one tricky thing is that uh, people will join one church just because of the basis on how they respond to the recent protests mm -hmm. or the pandemic. Um, not necessarily for, for bad reasons, but just the idea that they're sometimes has been a lack of forbearing with the difficulty and right. going for those who are like-minded in Christ, but like-minded in these other issues. Yeah. And sometimes we need to forbear with people who we really struggle with in terms of their differences. Yeah. Same-sex marriage. Yeah. And, you know, and there's uh, issues of all different levels of where, where um, as long as we have these parameters of, okay, we have the basis of a biblical framework. How can we work out our unity through the biblical framework? At least we have a higher law to look out and then discuss based on that rather than based on some other ethic, um, an ethic of social conscience, of love, or um, like this amorphous kind of thing of justice. Those things get thrown out there all the time, but no one's defining them because they're connotation words. They have power because they've had meaning in the past, but they don't have, but they only have meaning now because we want them to have meaning and we assume they have meaning, but we don't discuss what those meanings are. Uh, but the biblical framework gives us grounds to say, okay, what is the basis of our decisions and our disagreements and how might we see one another? And so as we've worked out the issues throughout the pandemic and other issues um, on our staff and as people have come in and introduced new issues, new ethical dilemmas that we're like, oh, we haven't ever considered that before. How might we think about it? Uh, at least we have a framework and to try to work those out. Sometimes it takes time. Uh, often it takes time and a lot of love and humility. Oh, Manoa? I have a question. Um, I've heard the term or this idea thrown around lately that we're, we live in a post-Christian society. That we live in a post-Christian society? Yeah, like, and I think they're referring to the West, like Canada, yeah. Canada US. So um, my question, you might have answered it, like, what are we to make of that? And like, well, I'm just thinking like, 
just the first sentence in our in our charter of freedoms is right canada is founded upon the principles that recognize the supremacy of god and the rule of law um other things that come to mind are like you know our national anthem god keep our land glorious and free um just as christians are we to to kind of mourn that we live in a post-christian society are we to fight to regain that um you may you i think you've answered the question but what, what, how would you define a Christian nation in the first place? Yeah, Manoa was asking how might we define a Christian nation, uh, uh, particularly in light of being called a post-Christian culture, yeah. uh, Canada particularly, but America would be included. The West in general is a post-Christian culture. What does that mean? Uh, how might the Christian think about living in that? Uh, I mean, I think that I said some things that it, give some implications for it, but I never really talked about that directly. It's a really great question. Um, I think it takes a lot of time to discuss, but I would say, um, you know, calling us a post-Christian culture needs to be differentiated between Christian nations, not as if we were a Christian nation, as some people put it. We were a nation that were influenced by Judeo-Christian worldview, like the preamble, the Declaration of Independence, the Charter rights, uh, maybe not the Charter rights, uh, but the the um, the National Anthem of Canada. Mm-hmm. In fact, if you read all five verses, the the following the the other four verses are all about God. Mm-hmm. It's just the first one; it's just about Canada. Mm-hmm. I mean, it has a lot about God blessing the land, and mm-hmm. so look at all lyrics for O Canada. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so. Uh, oh God, keep our land glorious and free. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so the rest of the verses have much more, mm-hmm. much more explicitly Christian, explicitly religious and theological. But, uh, and so those, we had the Lord's Prayer in schools. The Bible was taught. Uh, these are elements that shaped the nation toward Judeo Christian values. And there was a consensus that the majority of people held to these, even if they disagreed on particulars, the atonement, the resurrection, um, baptism, uh, Quaker, Catholic, um, and, and even later, you know, Jewish and Catholic became more prominent later, but, uh, but even Protestantism was very divided, even in the colonies and the colonies. And so the state rights and the religious rights were really tied up together under one umbrella, one nation under God. Uh, And so you can see how the nation was influenced by Christianity. So that's why it was called a Christian culture, even though the state was not a Christian state. That's very different. Uh, It wasn't like pastors were presidents as pastors. But the president, or yeah, it wasn't a theocracy. Um, and it wasn't ruled by the Mosaic Code, like a theonomy or something like that. It was just influenced by Christian values, human dignity, equality, uh, and so on. Um, checks and balances. But now we move past into a post-Christian culture because those things are no longer held as valid. Um, and so we can't really say that human dignity is based upon God uh, or equality is based on God. It's based on reason, conscience, the spirit of brotherhood. 
Uh, and that's where we've really moved. But we continue to live on many benefits, many privileges that our Christian that our Christian heritage have given us. And so we had one guy come, dear friend of uh, um, ours. He's come here many times. He's just not here tonight. Um, but I asked him, why did you come from Canada? He came from Colombia. And he said, I wanted to see the success of philosophical materialism. And I was like, there is no success. And he was like, Canada is proof. And I said, Canada is living off the inheritance of Christianity. And it's using up all the capital and not restoring any of it. Mm -hmm. And he was really surprised by that. And he came six months later and he's like, it's so obvious to me now that that's what's happening because there is no basis. There's no root for why we believe in dignity and quality checks and balances without that Christian heritage. Mm -hmm. And so we take the inheritance and despise the parents, you know, mm -hmm. uh, we're kind of like a prodigal nation. And so that makes us post-Christian. Mm -hmm. Well, should the Christian, uh, how might the Christian live in such a society? You said, should we try to take it back? Yeah. Or the um, influence. Back to or the influence. Yeah. And I think in many ways, we can do that in local ways and in larger ways, national ways, yeah. where we're, we're wanting to, and we can be very thankful to God that there are still checks and balances. You know, we still have debates in the House of Commons, mm -hmm. even if they don't listen and the answers aren't being given. Mm -hmm. uh, there's still the form, the form of it. Um, <coughs> they see, just wanted to add something. Okay, one second, Thomas. Tom. I don't know if he still does. Okay. But uh, what we have is that we will soon realize as a nation, if we are not able to function as a voice in society, the church will be, become, it will degrade itself. It will eventually fall into its own pit. But Christians are a good yeast in society. For example, there was um, uh, these homeless people, when I was in Vancouver and I was part of a church council and they, uh, and we fed the homeless and got them off the streets one night a week. Mm -hmm. So did other churches. Well, the homeless people started coming in and the housing prices started going up. It was right when, you know, in 2007, they said the bubble was about to pop. <laughs> uh almost 20 years ago um it's got to pop someday <laughs> but uh people were really upset homeless people were coming into their neighborhood hurting their price values their housing costs or housing prices they were mad at not our church but churches like us who were doing the same thing and uh and so the mayor called all these ministers um, and the executive ministers of these denominations and pastors to his office to talk to them. And I'm friends with one of these guys. Uh, he's an executive minister of this one denomination. And he's kind of a scallywag. He likes to say things a little provocateur. And the mayor's like, you know, we just can't have this. And this guy got up and said, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. You know, what we're going to do is the churches are not going to help the homeless people you know what, we're going to send them in your way and the taxpayer, and you can explain to the taxpayers um, of what you need to do for them for what we do for free. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And, and the mayor's like, whoa, 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 whoa. We, we really love churches. We really respect <laughs> what you're doing. And he had to pull back and say, okay, keep doing what you're doing. And so he realized that I can, I can handle people being upset with me because of their housing prices, but I can't handle all these taxpayers asking us about how we're doing this and how much costs and all this stuff. Uh, and we're going to have to set up facilities and all this, but the church are doing it for free. Mm-hmm. The church is good yeast for society, for a good society. And when the church, with when it restrains itself, the society is hindered, decays. And so I don't... Um, uh, I think people don't realize how much the church helps society. They think it's all bad, but in reality, it's very, very good. Mm-hmm. Yes, it has done atro- it has caused atrocities. Yes, it has done things it should repent of. Mm-hmm. Yes, it should publicly do so. But at the same time, the church has done wonderful things. Um, and the churches need to function as a good church, as true to the gospel, in order for society to be restored, because that's how the early church restored, um, brought reformation to Rome. It was very powerful, but through small little mustard seeds, caring for prostitutes, slaves, the poor, the oppressed, um, and you reconciling these very diverse groups into Christ radically transformed society. It didn't need to be big. It didn't need to take over. Um, It was able to do it by its own mission. And I think the church can do that for our country and for countries if we stay true to that mission. But yeah. Yes, Liz. Um, I want to make one very short comment, then I'm going to turn it over to Thomas because he has something he wants to say. Okay. Just, just want to say that people often talk about, or a number of people talk about it as a kingdom without the king, trying to have the kingdom without the king yeah. in the post-Christian culture. So it's not like we don't. In a post-Christian so culture, we're trying to have the kingdom without the king? Right. Okay. Um, Thomas, you had something you wanted to say? Sure. Um, Just add on to what you said before, something that caught my interest. You had mentioned about uh, Martin Luther King Jr. with the when they did the sit-ins and the hoses were turned on them by the police and the impact that that had uh, wasn't what they thought it would be because people saw that and 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 they felt guilty for what was happening to these people, remorseful and wanted change. Uh, and I, as we were talking about the post-Christian world, that was at a time when Christianity had a much bigger influence in the United States. Mm. And they did have an understanding of equality and the dignity of man, grace, compassion, human rights. I would, I, I would think that today, from what I see, is that if those same hoses were turned on protesting Christians today, it wouldn't have that impact. People would laugh. People would be happy to see that happen. And the in the post-Christian wor- world or post-Christian America that that's been brought up, the our influence is so small and gets in the way of the evil that wants to be done by a number the, the, the even what we call a ruling class, I suppose now. That uh, if Christianity is not going to make a bigger voice and a bigger protest its influence will be gone. So we can talk about legal channels all we want, but the legal channels are all corrupted now. Our constitution was meant to be read by a farmer, a layman, and be very simple, but we've adulterated it 
with, with a legal system and taken the rights away from these people. And so America is at a spot where it's going to have to make a choice. If it wants to retain freedoms, if it wants to have these truths that are self-evident, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, we're, we're going to have to stand up and do something. Sure, I'm peaceful too, but at least make a voice their opinions. Because as uh, even as a teacher at 30 years, I'll retire this year, 31 years, I've watched the morality just absolutely erode in public school. And we do nothing about it because we don't want to be mean. We want to be nice. And at some point, we're going to have to say, look, at, at, for being nice, we're, we're turning our backs on, on Christ. You know, our, our Savior was crushed. And yet we're willing to accept all this immorality of watch what we're happening, watch, watch these things erode in our own country because we don't want to step in and say, hey, that's wrong. This isn't what God intended. And we're fearful. There you go. Yeah, yeah you thank go. you. Um, yeah, I, I appreciate that spirited contribution. And because there are things are dire, uh, it is a difficult time. And especially as we see a religious freedoms eroding, as we see morality in general eroding, any general, it's not even just a Christian consensus, but a consensus on any type of morality is gone. Uh, yeah, the legal channels have been corrupted. There is a lot of pettiness that, that makes for policy um, or, you know, um, glad handing and, uh, you know, whatever it might be in terms of what makes it into law and what doesn't, uh, where's the money. Yeah, there, there are lots of things that have corrupted our ability to speak and to be heard. Mm -hmm. uh, it has really corrupted and hindered our ability to act. But um, sometimes when such corruption is that way, getting really big doesn't necessarily help. Um, uh, I think that we need to have temerity. We need to have that kind of doggedness, but we need to have that doggedness where we're not ravenous or I don't know the right word, rabid. Rabid is the word I'm looking for. Um, we don't want to have... YouTubes that say Christian destroys atheist. <laughs> I don't think that that helps either. No. You know, Nobody's I'm gonna, asking for that. <laughs> I'm going to make my YouTube go big or go home. And so uh, while sometimes it can be fun and even intoxicating to watch, uh, but they're not, I don't think, helpful. So how might the church regain its voice in its power? Um, you know, I mentioned that there was this, I think the pandemic is going to reveal a lot. I think that people are hanging by a thread in uh, a large demographic, a large percentage of society is hanging by a thread, looking for something. How might Christians be able to speak and be heard? It seems to me that um, 
that God has always worked through a few in order to make large changes. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think a faithful few that are active, but humble, you know, you're saying willing to be crushed, you know, thinking about that is like, what does it mean to be willing to be crushed? No, I, yeah, but I meant in as in Christ was crushed for us. And so when we allow, we continue to allow uh, people to put down our Savior in the sense of, you, you I'll make it easy. Uh, you need to be nice to, um, you need to accept transgenderism the way we, in, in public school and accommodate it and just be nice. Right. Okay, fine. And prior to that, you asked me to be nice about, homosexuality and prior to that you asked us to be nice about abortion and prior to that you asked us to be nice about this this and that and and at some point you have to say hey i'll still be nice and kind but this is sin and we we have to address it as that and what you're doing to society by promoting this is you're tearing apart society and christianity at some point are going to have to say hey look we'll be not We'll be kind and gracious and merciful, but this has to stop. Yeah, I do think that there are times when if, you know, as I was mentioning earlier to a question about we need to think of the steps before it's too late. Let's not just sit on our hands until the culture is lost. And and I do believe that Christians have been trying to speak out for a while, but just the culture is going faster than you know, and it's not being heeded by what Christians have said. Um, but, you know, mm-hmm. in, um, in Canada, we, I don't think it's officially passed yet, but it's been tabled and it's been unanimously accepted, but it hasn't been issued into law as the Bill C-4, mm-hmm. as I understand it. But Bill C-4 is uh, commonly known as the conversion therapy bill. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, there are laws against hate speech toward um, minorities uh, that already exists in the, the law in Canada. But this is a bill that was created in light of Christians, particularly Exodus International, uh, having programs to convert gay people into straight people. And that was called conversion therapy. Uh, now, some of it was um, a very, very small percentage were, was, you know, electric shock and deprivation, but very, very small. But a large percentage was not like that. Um, but it got um, and then the failure of the moral failures of Exodus International really put it in the public light. And they created a law around conversion therapy where a person was could not be coerced or forced into these programs and made these programs illegal. Well, ever since transgender or I'm sorry, gender expression and gender identity became a part of the human rights uh, through Bill C-16 in Canada, uh, the, the bill, the conversion therapy bill has now been expanded toward, um, uh, one, it cannot force or coerce a transgender person to become cisgender. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. but they've changed the but they've changed the language um, because they were saying you couldn't pay for service. Uh, the person could not pay. You could not offer paid services to help someone, uh, a gay person, try to deal with their desires or to become straight. Uh, but also, you could not pay a person for services to help a person uh, identify with the body that they were born with. Um, but now it's been expanded to say you cannot repress um, sexual orientation. You cannot repress gender identity or gender expression as a part of our charter rights. Okay. Not just a corporate law, not a business law, but the law of the land. I think don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that we have to repress the rights of anyone. What I'm saying is that it's the opposite side. In other words, it's this particular group that is controlling the education system or the political system and, and, and in a sense, the world system. In other words, I don't care how you want to live your life. I'm all for it. I'm, I believe in actual freedom, which is, which is founded in our, in our constitution. I believe that, hey, you, you have the same rights I do, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, go do it. But then we don't want to take, if someone disagrees with that lifestyle, we shouldn't be putting them into this, into saying your Christianity is what is what is going to be put down. This right. And so I'm agreeing with you. I was just trying to, I, I, I uh, yeah, I mean, and, and that's why I'm trying to make, I was trying to lay out this history of this development of this bill by saying that religious freedoms were becoming more and more infringed upon. And even parental freedoms and parental rights are being infringed upon by the state. And so there is a point when the church or when the Christian has to say, well, I'm going to be guilty by the law uh, quite easily if I find myself in a certain situation. But yeah, and to your point, I mean, and so what's being pushed in the schools, especially government funded public schools is going to need to follow the letter of the law. And soon as the letter of the law is established and that's the new curriculum. Right. And this, I use, I'm a teacher. So I use schools. This, this extends into everything else we've, we've talked about the issue. When you go back to Daniel, uh, I love the book of Daniel. I love what you did tonight, but uh, uh, (laughs) Daniel didn't live in the United States and he didn't have unalienable rights given to him endowed to him by his creator. So it's a, in the situation with living in America, it, it is that we have been given the gift of unalienable rights, but we're not using it. Right. Yeah, it's well said. I mean, because the basis of that has been lost. Right. And it's hard to, and it's hard to even appeal to because it's been lost. Hey, Clark, can I yep. make two shameless plugs here? Um, okay. I Manoa's to... going to give two shameless <laughs> plugs. Can we, can we take a question from Andrea, who's been waiting? Oh, Andrea, yeah. yes. One, yeah, so just on this topic, I read a really good book, um, and obviously I need to read it again, judging by my question, but <laughs> it's called um, Being, um, it has good, but they crossed it out, and it says Being the, good, uh, the Bad Guys, and the subtitle is How to Live for Jesus in a World That Says You Shouldn't. Being the bad guys, uh, living, living for Jesus in a world that says you shouldn't living 
for Jesus in a world that says you shouldn't. Yeah, the author okay, is Stephen McAlpine. I really by Stephen McAlpine. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Okay, um, and secondly, tomorrow um, there's the church where my family goes in Ottawa. They're hosting an online conference. It's called the Religious Freedom Conference, um, and they'll be speaking on Bill C four. Uh, there's a religious freedom conference held by a church in Ottawa that is going to be speaking directly about Bill C4. You know, I talked to um, my colleague from Brazil, the one that was on the Human Rights Commission. He's been to the States and he was on uh, he was on these boards. I mean, uh, in these meetings where France, Argentina the Netherlands and many countries were represented and so was Canada. And he said that the Canadians were most antithetical to religious freedoms. What I think is with all the, the problems that we're discussing, everything from, you know, how you pointed out from abortion to transgender, to this, to that, to that, um, you know, Germany uh, during the Nazi era, uh, in the end, people came to the conclusion, it's, it's like as if there is, I mean, how can you say it? As if there is a force out there, it just spreads. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's a horrible thing. And it's, we find it at the universities. The universities, um, all of a sudden, uh, the English department came up with certain kinds of um, themes, and then it had to spread to every other department, even though it was not immediately relevant. I don't know, this, this ideological thing, this, this kind of idea thing, this mentalities or whatever we call it, it's, it's like a force that just goes and, and goes through, through societies like a madness. And it is extremely difficult to free ourselves of it. Uh, because then all these other little accusations come at, well, if you say that, then you're not, you. if you say that, you're such an, you exactly. don't understand. Mm -hmm. yeah. So this is, this is the thing. You know, I will say one more thing that I've, re I've really said too much, but you know, Ehrenberg, when he was pushed out of the church, um, he was in the, in the resistance, in the, um, um, when he was pushed up because the Nazis pressured him, he gave a sermon to the church. It was full. There were several thousand uh, people in front of him. And he stood there and he said, as I look out upon you, I see three groups. I see the curious. I see the sad. And I see the brave. And he, and he said, the curious are the ones that come here to see a spectacle. Hmm. They want, they know they're, 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 they're like Nazi informers or whatever, you know, all of these kinds of things. They come into the church and they want to see, okay, what's he going to say? What, what you know, et cetera, et cetera. They're not with it at all. And he thinks that they need to um, really um, admit to their wrongdoing. And the sad is like the, um, people who know it's wrong to, to accommodate yourself to a bad system. They know it's bad. They, uh, this is the largest group, but they feel powerless and, they, and, and, the, and the everyday things are a force and they weep. And that's 
a kind of a resistance. And then they're the brave that really go out and do resist and they lose their lives. They lost their lives in large numbers. So I think our society and Christians here may be in the same kind of boat where, you know, this is, we are in this fold. And I think many of us here is we, we fit the, the sad lot. Hmm. We, we know this is wrong. Um, it's, um, but um, what, how, and when, and when we come into a position that is something else, isn't there yet for us, you, know, you see. And there are a few that are brave and there are a few secular ones, for example, that have started the new university in Austin, Texas, because they think our universities are teaching ideology and not the pursuit of knowledge. Oh, the University of Austin? Yeah, you've probably heard of that. Mm-hmm. Well, you, I, I, I really like that, Carla, just saying, just differentiating between the curious, the sad and the brave. And yeah, I, you know, I think that sometimes being a, a teacher, an instructor, a person of hospitality falls much more into sad. But sometimes, uh, you know, you try to instill bravery into some. I feel like I've been and where, if you want to be brave, you can never be brave by yourself. Mm-hmm. I mean, even if you've sorted it out with God, neither Bonhoeffer nor any of those who were in the resistance ever did what you did by yourself. You were. Ch- mm-hmm. That's a really good point in terms of. And Dan- then you have very careful. Sorry. I'm if sorry. You, if uh, you want to change things, if you want to change things, you cannot change it by yourself. You can pray, you can do all these things, you can have your conversations with or rather listen to God or whatever. And this is very important, but you need other people who are somehow like-minded with whom you can sit uh, in your home or whatever and intense and honest discussions. Like C.S. Lewis and the Inklings, for example. Why do we not have things like that? It's so difficult to have a thing like that in Canada. Of course, most of us are always so involved in our professions, you know, and so busy. Yep. I mean, you had the Clapham sect, um, sect and uh, for Wilberforce. Um, even here in Daniel 2, you had uh, his friends. He went to his friends. Uh, and I do believe C.S. Lewis said that you can be so confident in when you're with your friends, but then when you're on your own out among those who disagree, uh, it can become very difficult. Mm-hmm. But... Yep. Well, I just, sorry, uh, Peterson is uh... And yeah, and, uh, and someone brought up Peterson. But Peterson has found, uh, Jordan Peterson has found like minds, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with a quite diverse group of people. Jonathan Haidt, who's on the board of the University of Austin, being one of them. You know, uh, and I think the University of Austin is not only trying to create uh, education without ideology, um, though it doesn't have its own curriculum, but it, it does see itself as needing to be a group informing other like-minded people where there are free speech, free, uh, freedom of conscience, freedom of expression. Um, and, and so I think that there are little communities happening and sometimes people call it, you know, there can be places like the dark web and 
such things as that. But um, I do think it's important for us to be able to gather in groups, even this type of group as we're doing tonight is a good group where we can have discussion and dialogue about diverse issues about what we might be able to do, but, but also having groups where we can actually form coalitions and alliances to know actually how might we engage the world more uh, strategically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yes, I, a little question is, is Andrea actually in Germany now? Yes. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm impressed. <laughs> the sun is almost rising. Oh, what, what, what is time the... is it there now? What? Yeah. What, what time? time is it? Uh, um, a quarter uh, before seven o'clock. Yes. <laughs> in the morning. In the morning. <laughs> but I started at four o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's lovely having you. Well done. Yes, but yes, they are very good conversations and lectures, so I have to get up. <laughs> That's wonderful. Well, it's good that you're also listening to another country, right? I mean, yes. <laughs> well, it's been lovely. I know it's getting uh, late on our end and it's getting early on your end, Andrea. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so uh, lovely to be with you all on the computer and all of you here and um, let me uh, let me pray let me pray to end tonight father we see that you have given us a story uh, that you have recorded this event that happened with Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar in a very different time and place and circumstance. But Father, we see that we need your revelation. We need your special guidance at this time uh, uh, in our countries in different ways, in the U.S., in Canada, in Germany, and in the Ukraine and in Russia. We pray, Father, for your purposes to be accomplished. And I pray that you give us bravery where we need to have bravery and where we can give support, where we can give support, and that, um, and that you can bless your creation through our modest attempts at faithfulness, but we pray for your kingdom to come ultimately. Mm -hmm. And so please, Jesus, come. Mm -hmm. Amen. Amen.